Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked that you're here today. I have a talk with a man, Dr. Mark Gaffney. I have had Mark's books in my life for a couple of years now. His book, Soul Prince, is kind of where I'm going to kick this conversation off. He's a rabbi and a philosopher and a, and a speaker. And I've been wanting to talk to him for quite some time. And it was Zach Stein, who's been on the podcast a number of times, who connected us. And we're going to get into the work that they're doing together with Ken Wilber. And it's a work that I'm very excited about and something I believe in. That is under the veil of cosmoerotic humanism and i'm titling this episode redignifying human need and that's a really really beautiful thing and we get into that i hope that's helpful for you so if you like this show consider supporting me on patreon that's patreon.com slash airing the air and if you have existential knots in need of untying then consider checking out airing the air.com slash coaching and my philosophical coaching practice is currently accepting clients so Thanks for checking that out. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Mark Gaffney. Hey, Dr. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Yo, Ari, good to be with you. Okay, so as we were just um, getting in too deep in the green room, um, I think that what seems to be at the core of your work right now uh, with you and Zach at the, correct me, the the Center for World Religion and Philosophy? Center for World Philosophy and Religion. We actually began as the Center for World Spirituality. I started it with Ken, Ken Wilbur. We started it together and Ken is still, you know, super involved. And then we, we kind of evolved it to Center for Integral Wisdom because we wanted the word wisdom there. But in the end, we wanted to go much broader. This is our 12th year and we've been kind of deep in this work for 12 years. And we renamed it the Center for World Philosophy and Religion. And that, that web presence is going up and it's actually held by a larger holding container called the Office for the Future, which, you know, I kind of co-initiated this instantiation of it with another dear colleague who passed away a few years ago, Barbara Marks Hubbard. Mm. So, okay. so we're in. We're in. That's the framework. We got the frame. Okay. And so I've had this, you know, this book you wrote just as you described forever ago, Soul Prince, that I really <laughs> like. Uh, there's... There's, there's just some amazing nuggets in here and chapter eight, it's the call for the soul. And, uh, the subtitle is the soul prince vocation. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of edit this as I read this, but I think that there's, uh, there's a reason that I have hung on this exact quote and it talks about how Loneliness is the inability to transmit the essence of who you are to another. It's the inability to share your soul print and to have your soul print received by friend, lover, or community. I I would say that the inability to be seen, to be heard, to connect, to share. Yes. 
And if the purpose of living is to get to the good, then the not good of loneliness remains the great challenge of every life. Overcoming loneliness and moving to connection, to loving, to union, is not merely an exercise in pop psychology fulfillment or personal gratification. It is the very goal of existence, of being and becoming. I love this and I want to yeah. start here because I think that one of the foundational issues that I see in the world that I think you see as well and are trying your best to address is that the foundation of being and of becoming the purpose of life is to move towards good, which we can, uh, the, I guess there is an enormous problem that the foundation of what is good and the shared understanding of what is good has been erased. And I think right. that's an, a massive problem. And that the point of life is to move towards the good, the, the, connection, right. the wholeness, the union. Um, yeah. We, let's, and, let's give that a name. Okay. First of all, I love the passage. So great, great passage. I, you know, sometimes you listen to a passage and you say, what well, I would rewrite that. And other times you say, no, I, I like that. That was good. I like that passage. <laughs> I kind of rewrote it for you there by <laughs> a little bit. Right. Um, but, but it's, it's a, it's a great passage area and it's a great place to start. Let's give it a word. Okay. And this is a, a word I wasn't using when writing soul prints, you know, soul prints comes out of, you know, I wrote it 20 years ago and it comes out of kind of a deep reframing of Hebrew lineage wisdom, you know, interpenetrated with, you know, early study of systems theory and complexity theory and kind of the sciences and, you know, kind of more of the Eastern traditions and, I tried to restate and then emerge something new in this idea of soul prints. But let, let's take that impulse that you're referring to, this movement towards the good, mm -hmm. right? And you you correctly noted that we need to actually have a sense of the good. Mm -hmm. A shared sense of the good. We need a, a what I would call a universal grammar of value as mm -hmm. a concept for our diversity. And it's one of the core goals of cosmorotic humanism, this new story of value, this new meta theory, integrating all meta theories that Zach and I are working on is to actually articulate a universal grammar of value as a context for our diversity. And value, right, is the strange attractor of reality. And as reality is value and reality moves towards value. Now, another way to articulate that is eros. And the experience of Eros, and let me define Eros for a second. One of the things that Zach and I are doing, you know, in one of the upcoming books, we're, we're quite a few books into the process already, which we haven't published yet. We're trying to actually put together this great library to respond to the metacrisis. And the core of our response is this, this new superstructure of reality to actually evolve the very source code of consciousness and culture by telling a new story rooted in first principles and first values, particularly in evolving first principles and first values that actually changes the mood source code of culture and then ripples through infrastructures and social structures. So one of the things we're doing is we're creating a series of equations. It's actually never been done, right? Like equals MC squared are equations in exterior science. So we're creating a series of equations, if you will, formulations in interior sciences. And one of them is an Eros equation 
And it goes something like this. Eros equals the experience of radical aliveness, moving towards seeking, desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness, mm -hmm. right? Desiring ever deeper contact and ever greater wholeness. So this Eros equation works actually across, across life. It works all through the world of matter. And it draws three quarks into becoming an atom, like proton, neutron, and electron, right? right? Now come together in this larger configuration, right? Atoms become molecules, molecules become macromolecules. That what drives the process, what animates the four forces, right? the strong, the weak, nuclear, the electromagnetic, and the gravitational, what animates the four forces is this, this eros. So that's a movement towards more and more value. And it's more and more wholeness, separate parts becoming larger holes that have more depth and more value that yield in their wake ever greater creativity and transformation. So eros is the essential movement of cosmos. And if, if you would say it this way, a proton, a neutron, and an electron, they want to come together. They're isolated. They actually have an inherent desire at the very core of reality. That there's an appetite in reality. Whitehead in you know, Cambridge as an Englishman, he called it appetition because mm -hmm. he didn't want to talk as an Englishman in 1920, don't want to talk about desire, but there's a desire in cosmos. There's an eros in cosmos. And that desire, that eros expresses itself differently at every level of reality. And at the human level, that same eros, right, expresses itself as the movement from loneliness to loving, mm. right? That essential movement of loneliness to loving. And, and you actually see it reflected in, in basic texts. I mean, I could cite seven different texts, but let's stay with the soul forms for a second, right? You see, you know, in Genesis 1, the source code text of Western civilization, and then spirit saw that it was good. And every day it was good. It was good. It was good. All through chapter one. Mm. Then you get to chapter two of Genesis, and all of a sudden it's not good. Mm. So it was good, and a kind of literary flick of the Genesis wrist is now not good. And what's not good? Lotov heyota adam levado. And it's not good for the human being to be lonely. So all of the it was good, which is inherent to the structure of cosmos, because there's no human being in chapter one of Genesis. So this is cosmic structure. All of the it was good at the human level is undone in the not good. And what's the not good at the human level? The not good is, is loneliness. So I, I seek to move from loneliness to loving. But that same movement, although we wouldn't call it loneliness, we would give it a different name, that same movement to move from isolation to wholeness, separation to integration, right? That same movement lives in the world of matter, lives in the world of, of life, the biosphere, then lives the self-reflective human mind. Those three levels, we call those the, the first three big bangs. At each level, you've got this movement of eros. Mm -hmm. Prince, I wasn't trying to locate it in the larger story. It's a book that's written directly to the human level. And then what I realized was, was exactly what you pointed out in, in your kind of, you did it as little parentheses, but it's a critical parentheses, which is we've lost a story of intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So I realized I can't just talk about loneliness. We've got to actually reground reality after all of the deconstruction and a great reconstructive project. Mm -hmm. And that reconstructive project needs to actually reground reality in a field of value. Wow. Once we start the field of value, there's no game, right? We, 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 we've deconstructed reality and we've incepted existential risk and catastrophic risk.
which are all rooted at their core in generator functions. There's actually two particular generator functions of existential risk. One's rivalrous conflict governed by win-lose metrics, mm-hmm. operate all the way up and down the system. And the second is what Taleb and Snowden call complicated versus complex systems. Mm-hmm. It's systems where the systems are actually dissociated from each other. But both of those generator functions are rooted in something deeper, a deeper root cause. And that deeper root cause is a global intimacy disorder. There's, mm-hmm. there's an and a global intimacy disorder is rooted in a breakdown in a shared story of value. So let's say you're in a you're in a relationship. If you don't have a shared story of value with your partner, you don't have a shared field of value, the relationship breaks down. So we're now in this global moment where we have a global intimacy disorder, which is rooted in a core breakdown, right, in a shared story of value. And since all of our challenges are global, right, every challenge is global. So we need global coordination. For global coordination, we need global resonance. For global resonance, we need global intimacy. And you can't have global intimacy without a shared story of value. So mm-hmm. you can't actually move and respond to the meta crisis, right, based on changing infrastructure or changing social structure, though those are both necessary moves. You actually have to go to the superstructure of reality, its source code itself, right, in the story of value that articulates that, that it's created or incepted from. You have to actually evolve that story. And that's what Zach and I mean when we call we call this a time between worlds and a time between stories, mm-hmm. right? We're yeah. in this renaissance moment where everything's breaking down. It's all being deconstructed, but the new world's not incepted. Mm-hmm. So what we need to do is tell a new story, but not a made up story, not a declarative story, not what postmodernism calls a narrative, but actually a story grounded in, as you pointed to in your, your little parentheses, which is so critical, grounded in a shared grammar of value, which is not fiction. My friend Yuval Harari from Israel, right, who's basically a, 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 a popular historian, but essentially a, a very poor philosopher and a kind of parrot of postmodernity, kind of an unconscious parrot, right? And and just fine, right? But but Yuval basically will say sentences like, the only difference between Gaddafi's Libya and universal human rights, none. They're all both just fictions, figments of our imagination, and social contracts of reality. That's, for example, Sapiens chapter two. That's that's a that's a parroting of postmodernity. That's a disaster, mm-hmm. right? And then you have Barack Obama who comes along and Bill Gates, and they say, you know, and and Jeff Bezos, and you know, Bill and Jeff and Barack say, wow, it's the best book we read. This is fantastic. Why, why are they excited about it? Well, because at least he tries to give the outline of a story. But imagine if fifty years ago, six years ago, Ari, you had a president of the United States, right, who said this great book, where the basic point of the book is is that value itself is fiction, figment of our imagination, and a mere social construct. That, mm-hmm. that person never got elected to public office again, right? No one even noticed it, Ari. Yeah, that was scary. that's scary. I, that's- I'd never read the book, but I, I interacted with a couple of people who read it, and they, the sense that I got was that they read the book, and what they realized were that humans were like a plague on the earth. It has a chilling effect, right, oh. on and the human soul, and 12 million people bought it, right? And they bought it because at least Yuval, and I like Yuval, and we 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 never crossed paths directly. We knew of each other we're in similar circles, at least overlapping in Israel when I was in Israel. But Yuval's a lovely man. That's not the point, right? And blessings to Yuval, but Yuval's parroting post-modernity. And 
the good thing, the good news was it's why people flocked to the book is at least the dude's connecting some of the dots and giving us some of the overarching picture. So I can feel like I'm locating myself in a story. The bad news is, is the story told is actually inaccurate, flawed, mm -hmm. right? It's done mounds of ignorance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in understanding the interior nature of things and tragic in that sense. But, but again, it's it, the desperate need for a story, right? Is, is captured by it. He wrote another book called 21 Questions, where at the end of the first chapter, a whole bunch of people sent it to him and they said, wow, is he talking to you, Mark? He said, wow, we need a new story. He actually says it at the end of his last book, but then he goes through all the kind of contemporary risks. And then what he basically does at the end is he does the classical move of kind of a, a sensitive Western intellectual. He says, oh, let me do Vipassana. And he, he basically, mm -hmm. he gives basically one of his teacher's Buddhist Dharma talks and the point of the talk is there is no story. Let's get beyond story. Right? So, so he begins with this kind of realization that we need a new story. Right? And then he goes through all the problems that would require a new story. And then his conclusion is, but sorry, there is no story. Story is an illusion. Let's actually drop into right, some deep state of meditative consciousness, which is a disaster. Right? Because meditative consciousness itself is based on an implicit story of reality, et cetera, et cetera. But we got we to get this is a big deal. We cannot deal with the meta crisis unless we can create global intimacy. We cannot create global intimacy unless we have a shared story of value. So what's at stake here is actually everything. And so that's why Zach and I, we actually came to Vermont and we set up this, this new place we were talking about in the green room to actually be like next to each other with a whole bunch of colleagues around so we could put all of our energy in trying to articulate this new story of value. And we've agreed that you're coming for dinner. So we're good. We're off to a good start. That was too I, long a riff. So thank you for 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 your gentleness and, and and holding the whole thing with me. Appreciate it. No, I think it's really important that we start with kind of an overview so that we can go back and build some of the pieces a little yeah. bit deeper. Um, the idea that you know, one of the ideas that I think that people are catching on to, or at least they have ears for more, is that there's a number of these things that are. Uh, existential risk you know like we can't just do things we can't power our civilization with fossil fuels forever like there's just not enough of it in the ground that's and then our effect on climate might also be a, a existential risk in our in uh, you know a certain timeline there's all kinds of things that people are kind of uh, awakening to the concept of the meta crisis is a bit more esoteric and the concept that all of these things are interconnected and um completely interconnected right interconnected interrelated and and feeding each other um is something that is uh becoming less esoteric by the day there's uh i think that i'd like to zoom in on two things here this shared grammar of value and this global intimacy disorder and let's start with let's start with this this value thing because value is it is collective and it's individual so there is nuance in people's values what's important to them so help us draw a distinction between what i mean when I say something is important to me and what is big, all caps lock, important. 
Fantastic. That's fantastic. So let's, you know, let's step into this, you know, from the door of value, which is, is a great place to step in. There's a, there's a lot of doors, but this is a critical one. So when we say value, right, we mean that which is intrinsic to reality that appears in my interior and that I can access directly. I call that, and we call that in cosmorotic humanism, the eye of value. And just like there's an eye of the mind, right, which does rational constructs and, you know, may do, you know, different forms of, you know, sciences and mathematics. And there's an eye of the senses, which is, you know, sensory and sometimes also amplified through Hubble telescopes, which is also sensory. So there's kind of this eye of the mind, there's eye of the senses. There's also an eye of consciousness, which is my general name for it. And the eye of consciousness has a number of subsets, subset eyes, if you will, E-Y-E-S. And one of those eyes is the eye of value. And eye of value means I have direct access in my own interior to value itself. Now, you can't talk about value, it can't be done without first having the larger context of a universe story. You, there's no conversation about value without that. You need a universe story. After you have a story of the universe, a universe story that's accurate, that integrates the best of pre-modern, modern, and post-modern validated insights into a larger whole, which is the universe story we're articulating in cosmorotic humanism, then you need a story of identity. So it's, if you say, where am I? It's question one. Who am I? Is question two. Those are the first two great questions of cosmorotic humanism. And the third question is, what do I want? Or what do I value? Right? What do I want? So there's a, a where question. There's a who question. And there's a what question. And just parentheses for a second, Ari, if we can kind of go wild just for a second in our parentheses and then come back. If you get complexity theory, what complexity theory is saying is, Complexity theory, which is a daughter of systems theory, but you know when computers come on board and you start doing the mathematics, right? So systems theory kind of completely transmogrifies into complexity theory, and I often call complexity theory kind of the exterior mathematics of intimacy of cosmos. Complexity theory is doing the mathematics of intimacy. So what complexity theory does is it says that you can yield an enormously exponentially complex system through simple first rules. That's essentially what Turing, and Turing was saying a lot of things, but Turing, right, the great code cracker of World War II, then goes to Bell Lab in 1946, 47, 48, writes an essay called Morphogenesis. Morphogenesis is a very complex essay, but what it's pointing towards is this notion of simple first rules. Mm -hmm. To notice for a second, brother, what I just did is I just articulated, I just articulated three simple first rules. Who, where, what? So how I answer, right, the where, the who, the what question, those are actually simple first rules of cosmos. They're embedded. Now, we have a number of answers to those questions in the postmodern deconstructive context, which are disastrous that leads to the metacrisis. We need to re-answer those questions in a way that's not a declaration. It's not a new age claim. It's not a regressive fundamentalist move. We need to integrate all knowing we have available today into the best answer we have to those three questions. Where, who, right, and and what? That's the end of the parentheses. That's what we want to do here. When we get to value, value is in that context. Without that, there's no conversation of value that makes any sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I would love to hear from you what you think the answer to those are, where, who, and what. What is, what is a 
21 year old man being told in America about where, who, what right now. Exactly. Exactly that. And that's it. Right. And, and, and just, we notice, right. Once we hear those questions, brother, we're like, Oh, okay. That let's talk about that. We'll get to value. Right. In other words, it just, it reshapes the conversation because when we move towards value directly, we're like, ah, what's that? Uh, tell me what you think value is. They're like, okay. Uh, no, no, no. Value is a subset. It emerges from right that field. So let, mm. let's look at each other. Just okay. For wait, a let me just make sure I, let me just oh, make no, sure I ma- I'm, I'm mapping this. Let's map together. So I like what you just said, that if you try to go to value directly, it almost doesn't make sense. There's what, did, what are we even talking about? But if you right. start from where, who, and what, right. where are we? Like, where do we land in the cosmos? What is our place? Right. Who are we? What is our meaning? What is the meaning of our existence in that cosmos, in that way? Let's do what a little more precisely. Stay with me. I'm going to jump in for a second with your permission. Okay. okay? What do I want? What do I desire? Mm. Right. And that's maybe what very, very specific. That's going to bring us to value. So it's where am I? Who am I? What do I desire? And as we're going to see, what do I desire and what do I value? We're going to be precisely the same. Okay, so the where is like almost a the cosmological story, and the who is the identity and the meaning of yes. our existence. The universe story, perfect universe story. Second story of identity. Yep. Three story of desire. Right? And like or value. That's right. Okay. What? What do I desire? So let's start in the middle, just just because because that's where we are. Let's start in the middle. Generally, I would start in the beginning, but intuition. This moment, we'll start in the middle and we'll go backwards and forwards. Fair. So I'll go okay, to but I, I just want to make sure I, I want you to give me what you currently see as the story, right? I almost want you to problematize this for us. What is the current story? Great, 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 great. So let's, let's, let me take you into a particular door. There's lots of doors here, but let me take you into a particular door. Let's go for a second to the MIT media lab. Mm. Let's open the door. Let me introduce you here at the lab to my friend, Sandy, as he calls himself, Alex Pentland. And Alex Pentland wrote a book called Social Physics, right, which became kind of a major book. Alex Pentland was, I'm sure, a very nice man, right, and has been at MIT since mid-90s, has gaggles and gaggles and gaggles of doctoral students, right, who all have completed their studies and are embedded throughout the TechBlux, the entire TechBlux of the world. You know, so everything that is, right, our technological superstructure is embedded from MIT Media Lab. So you'd want to know what's what's their universe story? What do they think about the world, right? This is not, here's what they think. They think that there is no intrinsic value in the world, that the world emerged from random selection. They're in the old social neo-Darwinism, which says there is there are no meaning structures in the world. All meaning is purely made up. Right when we die, it's game over. Right, so it's a reductive materialism. And actually, when you read social physics, if you read it carefully, and I just finished writing a book with Zach, we're literally just completing. Zach's working on it literally upstairs right now, and he's redrafting pieces of it. But if you read social physics, which you actually realize is this is a reductive materialism in kind of very, very kind of Pollyannish, right, techno-optimistic language, mm-hmm. and you realize that actually the MIT Media Lab are direct students, now hold for a second, of B.F. Skinner, 
mm-hmm. who was decades reductive psychologist mm-hmm. who who was brilliant right he's kind yeah. of just by people as this kind of evil fiend he was actually brilliant and 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 insightful and wrong right yeah, he and, did most of the work with rats and uh motivation he, he, and he pigeons and rats early in his career and he found something called radical behaviorism right and he wrote a book called walden two and walden two was a a utopian novel he wrote and he was actually in dialogue in argument with orwell and he writes actually a postscript to Walden II, which is called News from Nowhere, 1984, in which Orwell comes to visit Walden II, his utopian community. And of course, Walden II is a response to Thoreau. His point is American liberalism, Thoreau, Walden I didn't work. It's a disaster, right? He actually saw Skinner that no one realized he saw existential risk. And then in 1971, he writes a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, and he's one of the, the most influential figures of the 20th century. Zach and I are arguing that actually he's the hidden and most influential theorist of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Because that his the MIT Media Lab and actually the entire Techplex is exact is actually our hidden students of Skinner and are actually adopting Skinnerian principles, yeah. which are a reductive materialist world, which there is no intrinsic value. Now we cited earlier a pop historian, Yuval Harari. Yuval is a direct expression yeah. of this worldview. Yeah. And the person that I have interacted with most, or his work, is Dr. Alfie Cohn, who is a parenting expert and has written a number of books like Unconditional Parenting and also a book called The Punishment of Reward that basically points out that most of our parenting knowledge is Skinnerian in its ethic, that we are essentially just treating our children like they are rats and we are training them like they're dogs. And there's something incredibly uh, sad at the very least of, of treating our children with this radical behavioralist ideology. Let me write. So first of beautiful, thank you. Let, let me try and adjust, you know, and kind of crystallize Alfie Cohen's insight just a little more clearly. Education always involves conditioning. Mm-hmm. Education always involves behaviorism. And the critiques of education that point out that education has conditioning and behaviorism are misguided because there is no education without it. The issue is value. Now stay, mm-hmm. stay with me for a second. Mm-hmm. In other words, the difference between an educator and a, and a conditioner, and there are many words that Pentland at the MIT Media Lab and Skinner use. One word is conditioner. Another word is controller, right? Another word is planner. And there's a series of words which stand for this position in society. They even use the word educator, but they use it as a euphemism. The difference between a genuine educator and a conditioner, right, is the following. Is the educator conditioning the student towards an arbitrary system of contrived value mm. that's not intrinsic, or do both the educator and the student actually bow, if you will, right, to this larger field of value that holds them both? Mm-hmm. Right? In which case, the the vision of the educators that the student will overtake them and overcome them, right, because they they'll step into the field of value and they'll know even more about that value and they'll deepen in that value. Mm-hmm. So, am I educating you to fly because you intrinsically know how to fly? Or am I educating you to raise you, right, as poultry for the slaughterhouse? That's yeah. a condition. Right? And that's where Skinner went wrong. So 
conditioning is always part of education. The question is, is that conditioning, am I conditioning you to intrinsic value? Right, right. And therefore conditioning is one of the multiple modalities of education or there is no field of intrinsic value. So then I then reduce education to conditioning, but I still use the word education as a euphemism. Mm-hmm. And that's a more sophisticated critique and it's actually much more accurate. So that's, I think that's helpful in understanding the field. But let's, let's no, take it I back. Really, I really appreciate that. That's an amazing clarification. And I think the the idea that that all education includes conditioning is really important. And the distinction between education and conditioning as essentially manipulation is a shared higher order value that you're not just conditioning a child to serve me. It's like, we are trying to align ourselves with what is good and what is life-giving. That's right. Open up Skinner in Beyond Freedom and Dignity. Just give me a second, right? Page 199 to page 201, right? In the classical Hackett edition. And what he says is, right? We need to move beyond the literatures I'm quoting. We need to move beyond the literatures of freedom and dignity. We need to abolish the inner man, the autonomous man. We need to move from the from the inferred, from the inner to the observable and the manipulable. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason Skinner says it is because, and again, he was misread, like Shoshana Zuboff in her book, Surveillance Capitalism, right, kind of cites Skinner as a bogeyman and actually completely misunderstands him. So her criticism actually falls short. She actually... Zuboff is very problematic that she refuses to claim value, misunderstands the tech plaques and misunderstands Skinner, although her work is magisterial and important, right? But but it makes three or four mistakes that make it, I think, ultimately ineffective. But bracket that for a second. What Skinner's saying is, is we're facing existential risk. You know, we actually, in this book, I collect all the places where Skinner Alley uses different languages, where he talks about existential risk and where Pentland also talks about existential risk, although no one notices that they're saying it because they disguise the language. And what they feel is, is that the only way to respond to that risk is to actually create the world as essentially a Skinner's box. And a Skinner's box was a box in which you controlled the rats and pigeons through Mm -hmm. schedules of reinforcement, which were invisible to the rats and pigeons. But they're not saying that because they're mean people. They're not saying that because they're traumatized, you know, little Hitlers running around, not in the slightest, right? They're actually Western liberals who actually took existential risk seriously and are willing to actually articulate that there are no intrinsic values. So the only thing you can do is you have to actually control the 7.7 billion people world that's exploding in some way. The only way, way you can do it is by using the web structure to turn the world into what Pentland calls a living laboratory, which is Pentland's euphemism for Skinner's Skinner's box. Yeah. So, so this is a good example of what you're probing for of actually something which is at the very heart of culture that's unnoticed and all the conspiracy theory stuff on the web, you know, about the technological takeover just misses the point, right? That's all speculation. What we're talking about here is the hardcore texts yeah. that are actually animating right the very superstructure of society so that's a very good foil now here's here's the big deal though the reason skinner and pentland did that is not because they're bad guys it's not only because they want to respond to existential risk it's because no one gave them a theory of value that was the worst that salt in other words both skinner and pentland harari etc essentially they're not philosophers they they imbibed if you will and, and the mother's milk of the academy, 
the rejection of value mm -hmm. based on two or three major points that are valid. There's a valid critique of value. We need to actually articulate that critique, solve it and respond to it. And that's what I've spent the last several years doing and it's eminently doable, right? And so, so that's what we need to do. We need to actually bring value back on the table. So let's bracket that for a second. What we wanted to do was to respond, Ari, to your inquiry. Let's see, is there a model of this alternative worldview? We've now got that model on the table. So now we can go back to our three questions of where, who, and what? Fair? Yeah, I mean, the the idea of going into the critique of value, the valid critique of value is so incredibly interesting to me. Yes, and we have to get there. We have to get there, right? And you okay. begin to, yeah, this, you begin to, you get, you're beginning to get the fragrance of cosmonautic humanism, mm -hmm. right? Now, these are the issues that we're dealing, and I've spent really the last decade on this, you know, and intentionally stepped a little bit away from the public space because you can just get so caught up, you know, in that response, in that movement that you actually yeah. can't think. So what we really wanted to do was to, you know, we did a lot of things in the public space and we in the end we made a decision. Let's step back and actually do the real work. You know, we're, let's go back to Florence. Let's recreate Florence. Let's go back to the source code. You know, let's stop doing individual issues. Let's actually look at the whole thing. And what I've been doing is trying to kind of articulate these memes. And then I'll kind of talk to Zach about them. And Zach will, what I would call Zachify them. Mm -hmm. Right. In other words, they'll go through his, he's the first prison and he'll challenge, he'll add, he'll, you know, come because he comes from a different body of literature than I do. Mm -hmm. He comes from development and developmental psychology. He comes from the social sciences, you know, and I come much more from what I would call the interior sciences, right. And kind of cultural texts, mm -hmm. you know, mysticism, and, religion, and scientific texts. I go yeah. in other words, I, I, I don't use words like mysticism and religion, although I'm deeply trained in them and love them because they're too elusive and too amorphic. I call it the interior sciences. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about actually depth structures of interior sciences. So I'm kind of, I'm straight in the interior sciences and in the exterior sciences, meaning I'm reading straight science, right? Very carefully. And Zach is much more in development, you know, and in social sciences. So when we bring those together, we have a field, then there's another gentleman named Howard Bloom, right? Who's wonderful, who's kind of a, calls himself a stone cold atheist, but he's a kind of a straight science guy. You know, our friend Ken Wilbur, Sally Kempton, who's kind of an interior. So, so there's a group of us, some guy named Daniel Schmachtenberg, or Daniel's very involved. So there's a, there's a gang in which I'll articulate something that everyone will challenge it, right? And so we'll challenge it for a year, you know, in a thousand ways. So now when you and I are talking, Ari, this is after we've, you know, I, we've worked this through a thousand challenges. So now you can feel that it's it's flowing, not because we're arrogant about it, but because we're actually confident about it. Mm -hmm. we, we've worked this, right? It's not a an impulsive idea. We've actually worked this and we can feel it. We can feel it moving. And so we're, we're both excited and we're ecstatically urgent about it because it's desperately necessary. Mm -hmm. So let's do the second question. Who who are we? Fair? Start mm -hmm. there? Yeah. We dive in there? That's okay? Okay. Okay. And I so, also just like... I just want to say that as you have bounced this through all the prisms of the people who I just have read endlessly, the Schmachtenbergers and the Zach Steins and, um, and the Ken Wilbers, I love that. And I also am just like deeply honored and so excited to bounce this through the prism that I am. 
Totally. I'm a different, I'm a different prism. All right. No, that is why we're here. You're a unique self prism. And if you notice, right, this is not something that any of the, what I'm talking about here is in some sense, not something that none of these people actually talk about directly. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're trying to kind of formulate it. And then we're not in the moment of the guru. We're in the moment of what I call the unique self symphony. Mm-hmm. So we need a unique self symphony. And so we're not in the moment of, you know, 30 years ago, I would, I would, I would have gone to an attic and written alone. It's not what we need to do today. So we've tried to generate to the center, you know, a unique self-symphony. So every idea that emerges, we can actually right, refract through the prism of the symphony, right? And, and the score gets sharper, right? And clearer and, and more beautiful. I mean, actually this year, I've done 10 several hour dialogues, conversations with Ken and Zach, where I've tried to kind of unfold the set of ideas, right? Where Zach's kind of talked about them from a kind of developmental Piagetian, you know, kind of perspective. And Ken's listened and challenged them, you know, in all sorts of ways, right? And some of the challenges we, we, we thought were interesting, some of them we didn't, we went back and forth, we had some fierce contestations and we actually came together, you know, and actually Ken, Ken said to, to us the other day in a really beautiful way, he said, wow, if anyone can do this, we can do this, right? And, and Ken's excited because it's actually, a, it's part of what hasn't emerged in integral theory. That's not where integral theory went. Ken was doing something else, which is wildly beautiful and, and wildly important, right? So, 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 so here we go. Here we go. So who are you? Who are you? And it's fun, by the way, along the way to do the little snippets of how this came together, because, because thought and biography are inseparable. So, so who are you? Let's see if we can do this in two minutes, because if we can't get to second simplicity, we can't do it. Okay. So two minutes on the clock. Who are you? You are an irreducibly unique expression of the love intelligence and love beauty and love desire that is the initiating and animating energy and eros of all that is, that lives in you, as you, and through you, that never was, is, or will be ever again other than through you. And as such, you have an irreducibly unique perspective and you have an irreducibly unique quality of intimacy that come together to foster your unique gift, which is your unique responsibility, obligation to give in your unique circle of intimacy and influence. And when you do that, you've now begun to play your instrument in the unique self-symphony. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like, boom. Like, yeah, like so boom, right? And we'll me- say it, but it's like, it's like, you get that's that's short. We can footnote every, every, every sentence there, but it's like, oh, so that's not yet. So that's, this began in soul prints, which is where you started mm-hmm. with us. Yeah. That's where it began. So take it away, brother. And I, I'm happy to say it again, to kind of give you a sense of it, but take it away. I'm, I'm yeah, asking- you're, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna say it again, but I just want to kind of parrot what I, what I hear. Oh man. And it's, and I, I love how you put it. The irreducible uniqueness. There's each person has an irreducible uniqueness that is the culmination of how the matter and animating life force of the universe has culminated up until this point. You're the tip of the spear of existence that is unfolding. And that unfoldment happens in you, in your biology. It happens through you that you produce and harness emergent properties of the universe. 
Good. And how you think and how you live is not only a unique expression of the universe, but the universe is also asking of you unique things that are irreducibly unique to you. There is, you are being asked something that is very, um, as unique as you are, that's being asked of you. Right. Ari, good. Right. Now just, and look how beautiful that is. Right. So, mm. so this unique self formula or equation just went, was just mediated through the prism of Ariness. Uh-huh. Right. Who is, so reality is having an Ari experience. Mm-hmm. Right? And so when Mark gets to meet Ari, right, the thing that's most exciting to him is to actually hear how this moves through Ari and it's going to be, it's going to add a quality. It's going to add a dimension. Mm-hmm. And, and stay with me. Let's move into just kind of the psychological for a second, but the soul psychology of it. Mm-hmm. And I need to be excited about Ari, right? Because we're not in a separate self-rivalrous conflict, right? Reality is having an Ari experience. So if I'm deeply grounded in my unique self and giving my unique gift, and I meet Ari, who's who's dancing in the air, right, and who's thinking, right, and who's feeling, right, and I get to right share this with him and then hear it refracted through the prism of him, I'm delighted. My only mm. actual embodied response is "fuck yes," right, right. It's like yes, right? uh-huh. and then what happens is rivals conflict disappears, jealousy disappears, right. My story is not Ari's story. And Ari's story is going to be, but his story in the deep sense of his story, not his surface story, not his ego story, but his unique self story, right? Uh-huh. Which was intended by Cosmos, right? Uh-huh. Cosmos intended Ariness. Yeah. And that's critical. That's one yeah, of the there's a, you're making a distinction there. You're making a distinction between what Enriquez says our justification narrative, how we justify our story or the stories that we tell in our heads versus the story that is our existence unfolding emergently in the universe. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In other words, when I say to Ari, right, that one of the principles, the inherent principles of unique self, of the irreducible nature of your unique self, which answers the question of who are you, right? And unique self, which recognize you're not a separate self, right? You're actually inseparable from the seamless code of the universe, but mm. the code of the universe is seamless, but not featureless. Mm-hmm. And you're its unique feature. Mm-hmm. So what you realize is, and it's an incredible first person experience that you're intended by reality. When you actually realize you're intended by reality, you can actually have a direct first person experience of your own existence in an entirely different mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, actually you realize, oh, I, I didn't decide when to be born. I, I didn't actually decide where to be born. I, I didn't actually even decide whom to be born to. I didn't decide what proclivities to have. I didn't decide anything about my DNA code. So why the fuck do you think you're so in charge of the story? Right. Yeah. In other words, and it's, you were intended by reality and an entire field of reality's allurements and desires that preceded you, right? In their inherent structure of intentionality intended your existence birth to at a particular moment in time in a particular field with a particular set of gifts that if you clarify right your own interior you will be able to give and you are therefore uniqueness implies not only that you're intended uniqueness implies that you're chosen by reality uniqueness implies that you're recognized by reality 
uniqueness implies that you are loved by reality because love is a perception and affirmation of uniqueness, mm. right? And two more, uniqueness implies that you are desired by reality. The eros of reality moves to combine separate parts into the unique whole that's you. And finally, Ari, uniqueness implies, as you just said brilliantly, you picked up in your recapitulation, that you're needed by reality. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. needed. You're needed, right? Reality needs your service, right? So mm -hmm. you can take a little less clonopin, right? Yeah. Right. In other words, it's a big deal. So there's kind of Maslow talks about these elemental needs in 1943 in his, you know, in his famous pyramid, but those are all separate self needs. Mm. Right? Maslow is completely rooted in separate self. At the end of his life, he had glimmerings of true self as a number of people have written up and that's correct, but he had no vision of unique self. He couldn't, right? And so there's unique self needs. And my unique self needs is I need to be intended. I need to be recognized, mm. right? I need right to be chosen, three, I need to be loved or love adored, actually, which is different. I need to be desired and I need to be needed. Six core human needs that are all addressed by the very experience, at least they're initially addressed by the very experience of being a unique self. Okay. I want, I, I want to list these. I want to list these six, as you've said, them. these are six, the six needs. The six core human needs that live right, in, in their crystalline form at the level of unique self, and it's the need to be intended. Okay, so intended, right? intended is not an accident. Right, intended, right? I mean, let me say it simply, right? Let's say you're in a relationship, and I don't know if you are, and I don't know how it's going, so let's not talk about that right now. Right, <laughs> <laughs> we'll crack that for a second. <laughs> I'm in so many relationships. I'm, I'm, in, I'm alive. I'm, I'm in the web of relationships, Mark. Come on. Right. That's right. Come on. But let's say you're in one of those relationships, right? But you are correct. You're in a web of relationship, but you, let's say you're in a human to human relationship. And let's say, you know, your partner is having a birthday and, you know, it's now September 27th and it's your partner's birthday. And at like four in the afternoon, on September 20th, they say, Oh my God, honey, right. It's your birthday. Right. I think we should go out. That's not going to go well. Right. Because there's a breakdown of intention. But if you actually wake up in the morning, and say, oh, my God, I've been planning this for seven weeks and I've got this great plan for the day. Right. It's not just an egoic structure. You're actually addressing a particular human need, which is the need to know that I'm intended, that I'm not an accident of cosmos in which I need to in which case I need to develop what you called a justification narrative, which is a phrase, a beautiful phrase. Right. So I need to, I need to, need to be intended. I need to be recognized. I need to have the experience of being recognized. I need to be chosen. I, I don't know if you did, you must've done sports in high school, considering what you're doing now, you must be a natural sports person. So I will just share with you a little bit of a, an embarrassing piece of information that when I, I always wanted to be chosen for quarterback in football, Ari never was. I could never quite get the ball to do that thing that the other people could do. So whenever we came to football, I was always chosen like usually second to last or last. Now, as you listen to all the people being chosen before you, your experience of Nirvana is, could it be that one day I'm going to come to this field and say, first pick Mark. Yeah. Never, never happened, but right. But, but, but the need to be chosen, yeah. right. is a fundamental human need. But it's more than that. I need to be not just loved. I need to be adored, love adored, right? To be doted on by reality. I need to be desired. I have a fundamental need to be desired. 
that can be distorted in all sorts of ways, but I have a need and I have a right to be desired. Desire is a fundamental human right because each one of these needs are rights. And finally, I have a need to be needed, right? And if you notice, these work bi-directionally, meaning I have a need to need and I have a need to be needed. I have okay. a need to choose. I have a need to be chosen. I have a need to adore. I have a need to be adored, right? I have a need to recognize. I have a need to be recognized. I have a need to desire. I have a need to be desired. I have a need to intend. I have a need to be intended. That We just literally reformulated the core of Western psychology. It's a big, so this all emerges from unique self. Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because this bumps up against a lot of what the modern psychology relationship advice is purporting, which is essentially that, and and I don't think it's actually in conflict, but I think it has, there's some synthesis to be made here, which is that so much of the advice is that you don't want to be like, you don't have a need to be needed. Like you don't want that. That's neediness in your, um, it's almost, it's a, it's a petty thing. And I think that there is a petty version of that. There is a petty version of that, of, of our own need to be useful and acknowledged that can devolve into a, that in, into something like that. The, and the, the need to be desired is something like, mm. it, it, it seems if you, I'm, I'm just like, I guess as I as I hear these, I'm I'm thinking to myself, how can I healthily embody that in relationship without just trying to people please, right? Like like I want to be seen for who I am. So I don't go like I, I feel like I I have that. I feel like I am desired, but I don't go about it trying to fill my need of being desired. I just try to be who exists and what I am unapologetically. That might be the best, the best way to be desired because you can only be desired for your unique self. Everything else is pseudo desire, right? But let's, oh. let, let's play with this for a second. That's really important. In other words, each one of these, every need has a separate self reductive, egoic, distorted pathological form, uh-huh. which I call pseudo eros. Uh-huh. And everyone has an authentic whole form, which we call eros. So we call these the six eros needs. Each eros need has can play out as pseudo eros, but pseudo eros is of course an approximation of eros, right? Mm-hmm. It's trying to get something, mm-hmm. right? Which it's failed to receive through authentic eros. Yeah. So all breakdowns in ethics come from this. Another core of cosmorotic humanism. All breakdowns in ethics come from prior failures of eros one of the most important principles I've tried to formulate over the last 20 years, which changes fundamentally our entire understanding of ethics. Once we understand there's this clash between the erotic and the ethical. No, actually at the core, right? Every breakdown of ethics is rooted in a prior failure of Eros without fail, right? Now, when Eros fails and we're left with the whole H-O-L-E with this kind of yawning chasm, right? Of the void, the gaping, an aching emptiness, we go to fill that, to cover that. We cover that with pseudo-eros, mm-hmm. right? 
And pseudo-eros is every form of manipulation, right? Every form of acting out, every form of addiction, right? Every form of, of inappropriate, totalizing, pathological domination, right? Is rooted in, right? Pseudo-eros, which emerges from a breakdown of authentic eros. Mm. So that's one. But the second one is really, we can't, I, I can't let this go because just, just loving you and being with you, I just want you to have this piece. It's a great distinction. We have lost our relationship to the structure of need itself. And we've mm. exiled need to a kind of surface mm. needness. So I want to give you a sentence. Evolution, in the sense that I've written way too many footnotes on, this is in the unpublished work that we're, we're going to try and bring forth. But here's just a sentence, which I think just intuitively, heart to heart, you'll just you'll, you'll swallow it whole and it'll go through the prism of airiness. And, and be even more beautiful. But evolution is love in action in response to need. Evolution equals love in action in response to need. Need is a core structure of cosmos, which got read out of its dignity and divinity by two major schools, East and West. Buddhism essentially dismissed need, mm. as did Western classical theism. Because Western classical theism says, it's a, a, a verse in the original text, be like God, be like God, and God has no needs. So if you open up Maimonides or Crescus or any of the classical formulators, they, they spend the first half of their book showing that God has no needs. And anything, any text that seems to say that God has needs, you misread that. Let me show you why God is beyond needs. And that's the very definition, right, of divinity. So now if you're a human being, you're supposed to be like God. So obviously, right, the less needs you have, right, the more like God you are. That's on the Western side. On the Eastern side, Buddhahood. The whole point of Buddhahood right, is that I've actually transcended, I've ended the trance, if you will, of needs, and I'm, I'm resting in this equilibrium. Now, so that's one half of the story. The other half of the story is take a book, take a look at, let's say, um, what's a fast way? Well, it's not fast, it's 800 pages, but it's good. Let's say um, Martha Nussbaum. Right, who wrote a book called The Language of Emotions, which is basically about early childhood psychology, mm -hmm. right? And she accurately summarizes Kohat and, you know, Winnicott and, you know, um, Balby and, you know, Ainsworth, right? As saying something like, you know, my words, you know, the healthy Western person gets over the humiliation at trying to have their basic needs met. Mm -hmm. Healthy Westerner, is supposed to have the ability to get over the, our humiliation having our basic needs met. Mm -hmm. Now catch this for a second in your body. This is a double bind at the heart of culture. Mm -hmm. On one hand, I'm supposed to have a healthy relationship to my needs. On the other hand, the source code structures of civilization, East and West, actually degrade needs. Yeah. So we're left in this double bind of need, right? On the one hand, I want to honor my needs. On the other hand, right, they're fundamentally degraded in the very source code structures that suffuse mm -hmm. Yes. We need to articulate a new vision of need and desire. We need a new narrative of desire, which is about what do I want? That's our third question, mm -hmm. right? What do I value? What do I want? So that's directly, and again, you intuitively, like you've done five times today, right? Kind of picked up on something utterly essential, which is this issue of need is central. Mm -hmm. We identify need with codependency, mm -hmm. right? That's what you were pointing towards. So we need a new narrative of need and desire. Mm core to our third question of cosmotic humanism what do i want what do i need yeah 
I want to, I want to riff on this, the, the idea that our notion of needs has been twisted, um, distorted, traumatized, man. Right. And the, the, the most humiliating thing you could be in relationship is needy or codependent. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing that comes up for me is like pain to use the restroom, private property. These are things that like when you own property seem normal, but then when you are literally stuck between trespassing and you're like, wait, I'm just like a, you know, you take all the mushroom, you eat all the mushrooms and you just have this realization. I'm just a mammal here, but I'm not allowed to be on the earth. What do you mean? So those are just a couple of things that that just pop into my head. But, but there's, it's interesting because basically for almost five years now, I have been working with nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg, which is a language that tries to get to the heart of people's feelings and needs. And it has been absolutely transformational in my life because it, it has gotten me back into dialogue with what it is that I need emotionally, physically, biologically, um, in relationship, as far as my need for space, solitude, all of these various things. Um, I realized that I had grown up in a world that not only twisted my sense of what I needed, but I had no vernacular. I had no vernacular for my needs. I had no language around it. And so- That's great. Absolutely. See if I can look at that's beautiful. I I actually I want to go backwards and forwards for a second because you just said two really important things and we need to freeze frame in each of them. Just just say because the Rosenberg thing is so important. I'm going to spend more time in that, but I just have to say one thing about going to the bathroom. Can't skip that. Basho, you know, that great Eastern thinker, says very beautifully that the experience of enlightenment, you want to know what is the experience of enlightenment? It's the desperate need to urinate. Like just building up and building up, and then you can, in the sense of enormous expansion and relief. But what he's saying is, right, and it's not born, he's saying it as a feeling tone, it's not born out in in kind of the larger thinking of his systems, but as a feeling tone, it's the addressing of an authentic need, Uh sense of right, which is actually quite beautiful. But let's go back to Rosenberg for a second, just to, to frame it for you, because I think placing this is really helpful. And it's Rosenberg is a, a good and beautiful example of what I would call the best of modernity, early postmodernity, meaning he skips the need to articulate a universe story, right? right? And he what he does is he assumes what we're calling in cosmorotic humanism, we're calling them common sense, sacred axioms of value, meaning he's saying, I'm not going to work on a universe story. That's not my deal, right? I'm not going to work on a whole you know, narrative of identity. I'm going to leave that to Gaffney Stein. Have a nice, right? I'm going to actually talk in this directly. And I'm going to assume as an axiom that need is real and dignified, right? And the brilliance of, of his system is the inherent assumption of the dignity of need. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that one it, of the first things that it does is that when you establish nonviolent communication as something that is a framework that's important in a relationship, you immediately establish that my needs are important to me and your needs are important to me. And I need, I want to inject a framework that allows us to communicate as such. Right. That's exact. That's exactly what I'm calling the dignity of need. 
Now here comes the big challenge. And this is where I think that, you know, and I, I've never met Marshall. And there were actually a, a, a while back, right? Many, many years ago, some people wanted to introduce it and it just never happened. Um, but, and so you first have huge kudos to his work. Great work, fantastic work, beautiful contribution. And you know, there's an and coming, but it's a loving and, right? It's a very different and than my critique of Harari, right? And it's insufficient for the simple reason that you need to do more than axiomatically affirm the dignity of need, right? We could get away with that in modernity, but as post-modernity sweeps away and deconstructs value, we need to actually reconstruct the actual value of need. And so go with me one more step. What if I actually was able to articulate the following, that actually the vision of God in Buddhahood was misguided and that actually needs exist in the deepest structure of divinity, right? Mm. And that's a shocking idea. And actually, it's probably the most important hidden esoteric realization in the leading edges of the interior sciences that never get public play, this notion that the name of God is need. God needs. God, here's one sentence in, you know, again, the God you don't believe in doesn't exist, right? So when I say God, I don't mean God as the cosmic vending machine. I mean, God as the inherent field of love, intelligence, and love, beauty, and love, desire that both holds and is inherent in cosmos. So one statement, Ibn Gabai, 16th century, God needs your service, mm. right? Ari's deed is God's need. Now, that's a shocking idea, right? That, that, that actually within the inherent structure of divinity is a need and a desire. And that's going to be the beginning of the third issue of value that actually desire, right, and need are actually inherent in, in, in source itself. So you could say actually that God or divinity is desire. There's actually no split between divinity and desire. And actually, when, when you look at the structure of divinity, why is Ari here? Ari is here because divinity desired Ari to be here. Right? And when you ask the question that Fichte and Schelling raised, why is there something rather than nothing? Hmm. Right? That's a possible question, right? The realization with the interior sciences that have gotten completely lost and which are now we're putting at the core of cosmorotic humanism is because actually God isn't, you know, when you create a new system, right, for this new world, we need a new name of God. So the new name of God that's kind of just kind of come down and just exploded is the infinite intimate, the hmm. infinite intimate. Right? God's not just the infinity of power. God's the infinity of intimacy. And intimacy is a desire for more and more eros, meaning more and more shared identity, more and more mutualities of recognition, more and more mutualities of pathos, feeling, more and more mutualities of value, more and more mutualities of purpose. So reality actually is the progressive deepening of intimacies. God's source is the infinity of intimacy that desires reality. And that's, of course, self-evidently true. Right. In other words, in other words, I could source it in a lot of places, but actually you can actually find it in what Zach and I call anthroontology. Because you can find it inside yourself. And that's I'm here because I was desired by reality. Mm. Right. Reality desired airiness and configured airiness. That's a shocking realization. So need is now not just dignified. There's not just the dignity of need, brother. There's the divinity of need. So yeah. all of a sudden we can now root Marshall 
and a larger field, which affirms the ontology of need. Now, do you need to distinguish between pseudo eros and eros, pseudo needs and authentic needs? Of course you do. So the clarification of need is, is the work of a lifetime. But actually, we've now we've now established not just we've not just made an an axiomatic postmodern claim for the dignity of need. We've now rooted need in the very source structure of cosmos as a value. Yeah, and just I is I. It's interesting because you, what I, I would have said that you you've just kind of rooted it in existence because right. need. Like the proof is in the pudding. Right? I like, like I like the way I like the way you you've used existence this way three times, and I like the way you use existence. And I get what you mean by it. It's a really good use of existence. Okay, it's one of the I've enjoyed most in listening to is how you use that word. See, I'm listening carefully, and you use that word in a particular way to evoke something in you, yeah. and you're referring to something, and, and I that's that's correct. That's what I what you're calling existence is what I'm calling the field of value. Mm. The intrinsic field of value is existence. There's no split. There's no fruitful split between existence and the field of value. Yeah. They're, 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 they're interdigitated. Yeah. And I think what I'm reflecting on right now is just the, almost the the divinity inherent in need, right? That needs aren't just dignified. They're like as divine as existence because, and uh, what I was pointing to was that the proof is in the pudding there, right? Like a child is born the child has needs. The needs are not met. The child ends, right? Like life stops, like existence stops, like existence and need are one and the same. They're entangled. They're entwined. They're evolution is love and action in response to need. Mm. And it's very beautiful. It's very, it, 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 and this, this is what I meant by this is second simplicity. Mm -hmm. right? It's not first simplicity. This is we're integrating an enormous field of complexity mm -hmm. into a second simplicity. And it's exactly what you're referring to. And it's, you know, it's beautiful, Ari, that, you know, my first degree and degrees are generally a waste of time, but, but I did a bunch of them and it made my mother happy. Right. But my first degree was in philosophy and I, I focused on existentialism. So I kind of, you know, when I was 17, 18, I kind of poured over all the existentialist literature. And of course the, the byword of existentialism is existence over essence. That's the best summation of the existential literature. There's an excellent book by Walter Kaufman on existentialism and another book written in, I think, 1958 by William Barrett called Irrational Man, which is actually brilliant. And, and, and But basically, it's existence over essence. But what existentialism didn't know how to do was, and this is why existence is a, is, is a word which is insufficient. It's why I didn't choose it. It came up as a possible possibility. I get in honor the beautiful way you're using it, and I get the resonance we could talk for three hours over maybe some bourbon on ice, you know, and, and kind of how you're using existence. It's, it's a beautiful usage, but it's insufficient. It's insufficient because I need to actually affirm the intrinsic value of existence. In other words, a reductive materialist could also use the word existence and it's mm -hmm. insufficient. In other words, so Sartre writes being a nothingness, right? This stunning book with an incredible transmission, but his essential point is, is that my essential experience of existence is insufficient to create a ground of value. That's the exact point of existentialism. So Camus, for example, opens his book, The Stranger, and he says, what does he say? Mother died today, or was it yesterday? And his point is, it doesn't fucking matter, right? right? Because there's no, the field of existence is insufficient 
to establish a field of value. And if I would sum up and you know, you'll, you'll note, I'm always looking for second simplicity. I'm looking for a sentence that can capture the whole thing because we can't create a new Da Vinci world story without it. So that's really, it's not a bad summary of actually existentialism, right? Existentialism rejected existence as sufficient ground to establish value, which is where Sartre's nausea comes from. It's a nihil, it's a nihilism, mm. right? And that, that, that's tragic. So we need to actually reclaim existence as a ground for value. That's what Goffney and Stein are calling anthro-ontology, anthro-human being. Ontology, it lives within me. Mm-hmm. Right? The mysteries are within us. And that's within the very fabric of my existence is ontology, right? meaning for realsies, simple word for ontology, for realsies, right? What we talked about in the beginning, you were describing, I think still in the green room, your experience in you know, in your world of kind of the art of being embodied in the wild ways that you embody. And you said something like in passing, it's all reality out there. Mm-hmm. Right? It's all reality. It's a beautiful sentence. And, and I said, that's the real, that's ontology. That's what ontology means. There's there's no atheist in a foxhole. That, right. There's right. It's just full on reality in your face. So anthroontology says that from your own interior experience of the direct confrontation with reality that lives in you and that encircles you, that that suffuses you, you can actually derive value. So you notice we keep moving towards value here. And and we have and we're at the beginning of the conversation. We've only we've only gotten to who are you? So we'll we'll need probably kind of a, a some some next phase to talk about the first question, the third question and get to value. But you begin to see how these are all interpenetrated. Mm-hmm. Getting to kind of do something which is very different than then some of the people you mentioned in the beginning who are wonderful people, you know, in green room, who are doing great things, but in a certain sense, no, no, there's no but. They're doing great things, period. Let's put a full full stop here and a colon, period, exclamation point, deep bow devotion. Let's put an and instead of a but. And the reason I left that kind of work, because my sense in my body is it's not going to take us home, right? Because the meta crisis, the meta crisis means something very simple. We could lose a couple of billion people to massive suffering. We could lose our very humanity, right? And it's the stakes are so high when you actually get the interpenetration of things. I said, what I, I mean, just this, this burning, not being able to sleep at night, right? Can we get to the core of it all and actually rearticulate a story in which for the first time we can see it? It's not a theory. And it's not because we said it's true. It's not a declaration. It's so compelling, like that it's self-evidently true, mm. right? And we're happy to get forgotten. You know what I mean? In other words, let this, right? And it's, we need to articulate this. We need to download this, right? And I think without downloading this, you know, I think we're going to crash, right? In a very, very serious way. And we may crash anyways, and we're going to need this for the day after the crash. Mm-hmm. But this is where we are. This is the, this is it. Wow. The idea that you're addressing the superstructure, the superstructure that, that informs and animates the infrastructure, the decisions we make with our money, with our families. And, um, as we, as you just pointed to, we're basically at any point in this conversation, we're just zoomed in on one part of the Mandelbrot. We are just looking at the fractal in a little different way from a little different angle with a little different shading here. And 
Uh, it seems to me that as I've experienced philosophy and the search for truth, that when you find it, if you just take it and you flip it over this way, it, it fits onto your your relationship with your partner. And then you take that same truth and you flip it onto your relationship with the child and it fits right there. And then you 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 tell it to your banker and it's like, oh, this is now my value here with my money. And it just, so uh, yes. the idea that the second simplicity, looking for the second simplicity, because yes. we are in a, as you said, there's a time, we're in a time right now where everyone is becoming aware of how fucked up things are. And everyone's also existentially anxious right now, like horses that are running around frantically before the storm comes and the sky is still clear. And people are like, why are the horses running away? Oh, they, they, they're feeling something. They have a, they're a, they're an antenna for something that they they feel is coming, but they don't even know what it is. Everyone's a little bit on on edge collectively, and I think that our uh, impending, not necessarily impending, but I would say like a looming knowledge that's growing of existential risk is um, disturbing and it's it's unsettling, and it's kind able of the to... second shock of existence. So yeah. The first shock is death of the human being when we become existentially aware of death that presses us into culture. Uh-huh. And what, what Zach and I wrote an article called The Second Shock of Existence. Yeah. Years, and the second shock of existence is not the death of the human being, it's the potential death of humanity. Yeah. But what it has to do is, is press us into devotional service to actually generate a memory of the future, right? Which is an actual source code evolution. Not solving individual problems, but actually being able, being willing and able to love that much that we want to know the whole in the best way we can in all of our imperfection and swallow the whole and then let her move through us, her in the sense of when I use the word her, I mean a reality, right? Mm-hmm. And actually articulate this new story of value. And that's 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 the overwhelming, ecstatically urgent moral imperative of this moment in time. Yeah, and I'm I'm so there with you, and I'm I'm so glad you're doing it, and I'm just honored to be in dialogue with you and Zach about it. And I think that I I have a I'm 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 totally on board. I have a couple of questions about the language that you use and how you came about choosing it, because there is um, you know, just to use the term desire for something as animate and inanimate as the universe itself existence to use to use desire is almost um i think Let, it, let's talk let's talk for a second about desire and and i sadly read about what's it what's it called it, what's it called when you when you give a human emotion to an animal it's a no no that's this, this is a mistake okay so just stay with me for a second okay so i get i get exactly sweetheart where you're going and by the way i I call men, women, and small mammals sweeter. Okay. Um, um, so, so let's play with this for a second. Okay. So what we're being, we're being very, very precise not to engage in a kind of primitive retrojection, right. Of an anthropomorphic, right. Human quality, you know, on the inanimate world. That's precisely what we're not doing. What we're doing is we're saying the following This is a core principle that Zach and I, this is a particular principle that we worked on a lot together. 
essentially what we're saying is, is that A, first principles and first values are intrinsic in the field of cosmos, A. B, there are structure stages of cosmos's emergence, what we call four big bangs, but the first three we'll just talk about now for a second, inanimate, what we call inanimate cosmos, but let's say cosmological evolution, biological evolution, so the physiosphere, the biosphere, and then the noosphere, right, which comes from the early, you know, Russian cosmonauts, right, um, you know, the 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 self the depth of the self-reflective human mind. Now, there are plot lines to cosmos. A cosmos is a story; it's a narrative structure. That's a big conversation. That's a whole dialogue we'd have to do to really unpack that. I'm finishing a book now on cosmos as a story. That's a very, very important idea. Bracket that for a second. But in that story, at the plot lines, there are certain values, these first values animate, they are the plot lines of cosmos. Now, there is radical continuity through all these levels and radical discontinuity, both. So when we use a word like love or desire, right? It'll mean one thing when we say that atoms love each other, meaning atoms might come together, or let's even do it more simply, a proton, neutron, and electron, right? They come together. They're actually attracted to each other, as science describes. They come together. They form a new shared identity, a new intimacy, when there's a new whole, right? And, and they're, they're actually drawn to do that. It's a very, very clear, right? So that structure, right, lives very, very deep in cosmos. Right? That's not a retrojection. That's mm-hmm. how eros, let's see, that's why I use the word eros and not love. That's how eros appears in cosmos. And one of the faces of eros, right, is desire. Now, you can change the word. So when my friend Alfred North Whitehead talks about this, and I didn't derive it from him, actually, I've been talking about it for a decade. And in the last year or two, some people have sent me passages for Whitehead, where I realize he's saying something similar. So he calls it the appetition of cosmos. Mm-hmm. The appetite. Appetite. But what he means is desire, right? Mm-hmm. Now, is, is that experience of appetite the same as Ari, you know, eating Rocky Road fudge Sunday? Well, not exactly, but but there's there's a fundamental continuity, even as there's a fundamental discontinuity. And so what happens is there's two mistakes that are made in thought today, and they're made across the board. There's the continuity mistake and the discontinuity mistake. And the continuity mistake is, this kind of weird retrojection of a human experience saying the atom is having it, which is a new age nonsense, essentially, right? It's obviously not true. There's obviously, right, clear jumps, clear discontinuities between structures of experience and reality. On the other hand, there's the discontinuity people who actually don't recognize desire as being an inherent structure of cosmos that actually lives in the inanimate world as well. The Mm -hmm. inanimate world self-organizes, self-actualizes, and has telos, right, and direction. How do we move from, you know, bacteria to Bach, you know, from, I don't know, mud to Mozart, you know, from quarks to culture, from, you got the idea, slime to Shakespeare. We got the the direction there. We do that because there's this inherent movement, Mm -hmm. and Eros is inseparable from desire. So, So we're being very, very careful with that, but it's not a casual usage. Right? It actually is one of the structures of cosmorotic humanism, which we could talk more about in a, in a different conversation. But this is structural. This notion of desire is, is structural. And in carefully 
thought out in terms of both its continuity and discontinuity. So that's a beautiful, I, I'm delighted that you brought it to the table. And my, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't bring it up because I assumed that it was unthoughtful. I knew that it was thoughtful. Totally. And, and I, I, there's something as I've experienced your work around this, I'm like, hmm, desire is such an interesting and juicy term to use for this stuff. It's like it's a it's rich. Um Ari, we're at the, we're at the beginning here. Where you're going, where this is this is so important what you're saying. Yeah. It's the actually an entirely next conversation because why because right, the, the choice of desire is not accidental. It's quite important on multiple levels and requires very, very deep unpacking. I am to my to my sadness and chagrin, we're about 90 minutes in. Yeah, so I plot for us till 6 30. So I'm 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 five minutes late, right? <laughs> you are. But we could talk, I mean, what we get is we could talk for out. We're just beginning. Yeah, we man. just like literally just and you are, if I can, right? Um, actually a delight, right? It's a delight to kind of be in an interaction with your heart, your mind, mm-hmm. your play. And it was, it was, I had no, you never know who you're going to talk to and what the conversation is going to be. So it's been, a, it's been a delight to talk to. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and uh, let me know how I can support your work. I'm so grateful to have been in dialogue with you about it. And I wish you guys all the, the best over there. Man. Thank you, Ari. Total. Okay. Okay, everyone. I hope that was helpful and insightful. I know that we are in need of follow-up conversations to continue clarifying this is kind of a big conversation and the work that those guys are doing is um, inspiring to me and so it's something that i will follow up with i am about to leave for mexico for a couple of weeks to race my paraglider if you'd like to support my action sports athletics consider supporting me on patreon and or joining my philosophical coaching practice. That's ariantheair.com slash coaching. There's a link for a free coaching call, a scheduling link. You should check it out. We will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Peace.